Creative Sandbox Way podcast, episode 154. Hello, I am Melissa Dinwiddie, creativity instigator and author of The Creative Sandbox Way, here to explore and investigate anything and everything having to do with transformation through play and how creativity and play can help you live a more full color life and be a better leader in all areas of life. I have been, oh my gosh, I've been deep diving in a couple of different things. First, I have been really deeply immersed in my Creative Sandbox community, which is my lab for women's leadership through creative expression. I talk about it some on the podcast, but I may not have talked about it that much lately. I used to run a lot of the community over on Facebook. We had a Facebook group, a private Facebook group. Well, I got really fed up with so many things about Facebook it's it's so distracting. And you know, there's ads and there's just all these, you know, so many different conversations happening. And the general sort of vibe of Facebook is a lot of shallow conversations. And the community, the creative sandbox community is really much more about having deep introspective conversations. And I just really wanted to get out of there. So we did. It's been about, gosh, it's been about six weeks now. Right around, right on Valentine's Day, I moved us off of Facebook and into our very own home in a, on a platform called Mighty Networks. And oh my gosh, what a relief. It's so quiet. (laughs) There's none of the noise of Facebook. And so I have been so immersed in getting the getting everything ready to open the doors again to invite new members in and in the meantime we started our very first creative uh challenge it's the half of march <laughs> it's a half month two week creative challenge and it has been so fun so if you're on Instagram, you can search the hashtag creative sandbox challenge, or I think the other hashtag is sandbox, March sandbox challenge. That's what it is. Creative sandbox challenge or March sandbox challenge, and also creative sandbox community hashtags. And um, Carla Olson is one of our wonderful members hosted this challenge. She designed it. It's a one word prompt for every day for from March 17th through 31st. Check it out. You can see some of the not everybody's sharing over in Instagram, a lot of people are sharing just inside the community. But it's been so incredibly fun and inspiring to get this little one day one word prompt every day. And the the idea is to spend just a few minutes, like five minutes, creating to that one word prompt. It's been so 
fun. And when you have a teeny little bit of time, time space to create in, it takes the pressure off. So that's what I've been doing over in the Creative Sandbox community. And the doors are going to be opening. I don't have a date yet, but I'm looking at uh, either sometime in April or in May. So stay tuned for that. I'm super excited. Meanwhile, I have been going nuts over um, basically visual notes. (laughs) So if you haven't been following me on Instagram or signed up on my newsletter, my insider's newsletter, you might want to do that. I've been sharing these visual notes that I've been doing over the past, oh, about two and a half, three weeks now, where I've been taking visual notes, basically because I want to bring visuals into the workshops that I run for companies and organizations, because it's such a rich way to draw, uh, to, to, to open up conversations and to document what's happening. It's such a great way to enrich the process and, uh, and to help people think. And uh, visuals are just such an underutilized and underrecognized, powerful, powerful tool. And so I've been practicing and sharing my practice over on Instagram and Facebook and Pinterest. And the best way to see them is over on my Instagram feed, um, instagram.com slash a underscore creative underscore life. It also feeds over into my, my blog. So you can poke around on my blog and find it there. But you can see everything most easily over on Instagram. I have been totally immersed in that. And one of the ways that I've been practicing is by listening to podcasts and, and taking visual notes of the podcasts. So that's been super fun. And I am obsessed. I want to do it all day long. That's like all I want to do. (laughs) Of course, I can't do that because I have lots of other, other things that I have to be doing. But anyway, that's what's been going on with me. Anyway, today's episode is all about the British ninja. You guys, I got to talk to the British ninja, (laughs) Paul McCarthy not to be confused with Paul McCartney. They both come from England, though. Paul has been studying movement and martial arts for over 20 years. He holds a he holds black belts, multiple black belts in martial arts, including and I'm not going to pronounce these correctly, probably, but Kali, Hapkido and Taekwondo. And he's also an instructor of Savate, Muay, Muay Thai and Jeet Kune Do. I should have checked with him how to pronounce all of those. He has an MS from Indiana University in kinesiology. And with that and his experience coaching, teaching and managing various movement practices, Paul is fascinated by what makes the body tick. Now he is currently working with neuroscience professors at UCLA, University of Victoria, and University of Illinois to study how martial arts movement patterns improve cognitive function. So the interrelationship between movement patterns, specifically martial arts movement patterns, and the brain and how the brain functions. Fascinating stuff. And Paul's philosophy is that movement is vital to a happy and healthy life. And training in multiple movement modalities is the best way to achieve that life. 
But what we talked about specifically was the relationship between martial arts and play and play in general. And we had so much fun talking. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the British ninja, Paul McCarthy. Sounds like you've got some exciting things going on. I am. I'm really excited. Um, We're moving forward with this event in June here at UCLA. Um, It's a martial arts and wellness symposium. Um, So think a a conference on martial arts and and how it benefits just a plethora of different um, aspects of life. And, you know, it was just an idea and my big worry that was that no one would want to come and present or have anything to say. And the opposite has happened. I've got I've got some fantastic people very interested. We're not we're not solidified yet. We've got to kind of go through like a presentation submission and there's an organizing committee and we'll choose. But I've got a friend who's a, he's an ex White House chef. So he wants to do a presentation on martial culinary arts uh, about how the food is connected to martial arts, which is I'm just so excited about. And another friend who uh, is on he, he, he does fight scenes and is, has been in several episodes of Vikings. And so he he can show like historical European martial arts. And that's exciting because people don't think of that. And this is one of the main goals of this symposium is when when you say martial arts to kind of like your layman, they think maybe karate, maybe UFC. But there's so much more to it. And I really want to expose expose people to that. So and that's on top of the I've got four uh, doctors, two neuroscientists going to talk about how it affects cognitive function. similar stuff from my TED talk. Um, so it, yeah, the spinny thinky brain is, is happening and I'm very excited about it. That is so cool. Wow. All right. Well, let's, let's dive into that. So martial arts, how you do, you do a lot of stuff with martial arts at UCLA, right? That's all I do. That's all I, you do. In, tell, in, tell me about that. Oh, well, I don't know if you can see behind me. I'm in my office right now. Um, this is actually the weapons rack that was made for me. It was made for my, made for me by my Wing Chun instructor, Jim Gregory, um, who's a magician with wood. So he's fantastic. So I get him to do all my projects. Um, but I'm the martial arts coordinator. So my entire job is surrounded by providing, uh, martial arts programs for the UCLA community. So predominantly students, but we have faculty and staff and members of the public as well. Um, so we, we provide classes, instructional classes. We have clubs where the students run the clubs and they're competitive and they go compete nationally and internationally. And we provide free self-defense for all the students on campus. And we do, we've worked with athletes. I've trained the UCLA football team and I've trained the UCLA water polo team and kind of hand speed and off balancing and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I keep myself busy. It's, uh, you know, it could be, I do spend a lot of time behind the computer. There's a lot of like payroll and scheduling and all that stuff that you kind of have to do. But I, I keep myself busy with fun things like symposiums, which that was actually my student's idea, Emily Lopez. She's uh, been fantastic. She graduates in June and wanted to, she wanted to have like a, like a culminating project. And this, it's turned into something I'm so excited about. How incredibly cool. So have you always been into martial arts? Uh, I'd say always since age 10, maybe 11, 8. I, I can't remember. I remember watching The Karate Kid, uh, a, a play date with my buddy Edward Leyland, who I've not seen in decades. Um, and we both immediately went upstairs and started punching and kicking each other. So parents <laughs> were like, okay, karate class, let's go. And that lasted like four weeks maybe. 
but then when I was 15, I started training and, and haven't stopped. I started in a kickboxing class with uh, Ian Goldie. You know what? This is a really cool story, which I've not even processed yet. I was home in August, um, and I was able to teach a, a seminar for, a, for someone, a friend of a friend who was like, hey, come teach. And I started teaching. And he saw somehow that Ian Goldie was my first first ever martial arts instructor. And he says, oh, I know Ian. He's great. He's doing well. And I've not seen this. I hadn't seen this guy since I was like 17. And he shows up at my seminar and, and like learned from me. So I was teaching and he was teaching, which was a total flip-flop. And he gave me this piece of paper, which was my student record when I was 15. And it showed me what rank I got. And it was the day I started. Oh, no, I was just blown away. And he's such a he's such a phenomenal person. And I'm so glad we reconnected. Um, so that's pretty cool. So that was my first foray into the martial arts and then really digging into it was when i went to grad school at indiana university so under patrick kelly who's the director there who's the same guy doing the viking stuff um i started taking a bunch of classes there and, and then moved to los angeles and really los angeles is it's the mecca of martial arts oh, really? uh, of all different styles it's so diverse um you know when when the kind of the karate explosion happened after world war ii and then after karate kid and then hollywood all the all the great legends kind of came out here and was like trying to get into the business so while they were getting into the business they opened schools and and just there's a phenomenal amount of very very high level people here <coughs> excuse me wow so i'm very lucky and okay so you so you you've been you're in mr martial arts <laughs> The British Ninja, as they call it. The British Ninja. <laughs> I love that. Old, old nickname, which I've actually turned into my business, which I felt like it was appropriate. <laughs> that is so cool. So tell me about how you relate martial arts to play. Well, it's it's almost it's almost a dichotomy. It's almost like, well, no, you're doing martial arts. Martial arts is seen as very serious, uh, very structured, very disciplined, almost these things which, which are like, if you have those things, you're not playing. But, but that's why, and they're talking about the symposium, it's why I really want to open people's minds to what happens when we play. Um, when we, sorry, see, I said when, when we do martial arts. Um, I went back to training last night for the first time since September. And I am potentially why I couldn't sleep. I'm so vibrant right now. I felt kind of like stodgy and dead over the holidays because you're not moving much and you're and you're and you're eating a bunch of stuff. Lots of I had lots of delicious cheese over Christmas Day and Boxing. It's fantastic. But training and I felt so vibrant. And it's it's not just because I punched well or kicked well. I went back to my community. I went back to my family, essentially my friends, and. When you're surrounded by people, one, you trust in a safe environment. And these are things that are really important. Um, going back to some of my articles on the on the, the UN comment on the rights of a child to play, like these are essential components. You have to feel safe to be able to play. The environment has to be conducive to it. Um, it allows me to do these drills, which could be very boring, kind of could be potentially very dangerous. They could be very stressful. But they, that environment allows me to do them in a playful manner. And that's what, that's what I think is really important about play is that any activity can be play. People play with mathematics. People play with engineering. People play just by doodling. Um, 
it's not the activity, it's the environment, it's the expression of what you do. You know, you could look at two people knocking a nail into wood and one person could be working and one person could be playing. That's how, that's how diverse, that's how broad I think of this play. So I love um, when I get to train with people I know, one, I feel safe for them because I know them, uh, and the, uh, kind of a, not exactly the same level as me, maybe a little bit more advanced, maybe a little less advanced, but a, a place where you can really bounce off each other and discover new things. And I think that's a key part of play is that creativity. That's what we're doing. We did self-discovery. You're like, hey, let's play with this and see what happens. So whether it's sparring, we use soft sticks and we try and hit each other. There's no injury because there's soft sticks. We wear some gloves sometimes. We might get like a scratch or something like that, but no point are we worried about having some kind of serious injury. And because of that, and because I'm with someone I trust so much, that family, that community, I'm able to jump in and try different things and do a spinny move because it doesn't matter. And that's the other really important piece. That there's no result of play. There's no, there's no award. There's no prize. I'm not looking for a trophy or a new belt or anything like that. I'm just playing. And from that, I gain attributes that may help me win an award or a tournament or something later on. But when I'm playing, that stuff doesn't matter. And and I think we don't do it nearly enough, in, especially as, as adults. You know, the kids kids do it naturally and we just, we grow out of playing. And it baffles me because it's so important to our cognitive development. It's so important to our, our health, uh, our brain health throughout life. Um, so it, it really does seem like a dichotomy, especially when you see martial arts movies or, or some very serious people training and that's cool. That can happen as well. But like I said, it's not the activity, it's how you approach something. So sometimes I approach martial arts and I'm very serious and I need to get this down or I need to learn this form. But I, when I really enjoy it is when I'm just jumping in, Hey, what are we going to do? Oh, let's do this. Okay, cool. Let's check it out. And we play. And that happens all the time with, with, some of some some great instructors I've got and some great training partners I've got. Yeah, I, I love I love how you talked about that. It made me think about like I have this daily doodle practice, and the actual actions that I'm doing are not really that different from when I was making my living as an artist, mm-hmm. making art on commission for private clients using similar tools, right? That I'm the similar tools as the tools that I'm doing using in my daily doodle doodle practice. The doodle practice is pure play. What I was doing for my clients when I was making a living as an artist, not play. No, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, yeah, go oh, on, I was just going to say, I, I had to teach myself, relearn how to play. And that's where I have these, I have these 10 creative sandbox way, call them creative sandbox way guideposts that I developed as little rules for myself in order to let go of perfectionism, let go of the comparison trap to remind myself how to play again. Because I'd forgotten how. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was all about like all, everything that you were just talking about. Letting go. It's, number two is think process, not product. Number one is there is no wrong. Number four is think tiny and daily. Number six is ask what if. It's all about following your curiosity. So many of the things that you were just talking about, it's all really about getting into the mind space of being a four-year-old kid playing in 
a metaphorical sandbox. The sandbox, yeah. yeah. Or a real one, you know, even that, that can yeah, be it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 When was the last time you did it? And how much fun did you have when you were a kid doing it? Why not? We've got a, we've got a student that started training with us a few years back at age 70. Um, and his name's Alex Acuna. He's, he's a world famous drummer. He drummed for Weather Report, for Diana Ross, Elvis Presley, just phenomenal drummer. Um, but he, he needed something new in his life. He needed to move. He came to the academy. And it just so happened that we, we trained to drums. And since he's been there, it's been uh, three, four years, I think now, our drum collection has <laughs> increased <laughs> quite a bit. But he said, he said exactly the same thing. You know, while he loves his job and going to do a job, which means he's playing the drums, he's, he's being a musician, is great. When he comes to the academy and maybe decides to go play the drums, maybe doesn't, there's no pressure. No one's asking him to do it. There's no money. No one's, there's no expectations. You know, sometimes we don't even notice until he starts because we do notice when he starts. Usually the music's playing. But if he shows up, we're all kind of training and he will kind of wander over there. The music will stop and the congos will start and we'll be like, oh, yeah. And everyone will get so much more excited. But that's because he's doing it because he loves it. No one's there's no expectation. And he said he is his drumming has improved so much because of that. Not that it could improve. He's already fantastic. <laughs> But, you know, it's a different space because there's no there's no pressure on him there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really different when you're doing something to impress other people or to win awards or to make money mm -hmm. versus when you're doing something purely for joy. Yeah. For the love of it. Yeah. For the love of it. And that space, that second space, that that's the play space. You know what? And I, another point, I, I remember someone, I remember a photographer talking to me about this. And, um, or, you know what? It might have been in that, it might have been in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. Have you ever mm, read that? Yes, yeah. that's a great book. He, I think he talks about the term amateur. Mm. You know, there, are, there are a lot of amateurs out there that are pure geniuses. The, Absolutely. The, the, you know, people associate the word amateur with kind of like not quite as good right. because they don't do it for money. But some amateurs just do it for the love of it, and they are the top of their game, the best of whatever industry it is. And, and we do have that stigma with that word amateur, which I think kind of uh, it's another thing. You know, play is looked upon as this frivolous thing that you, if you've got some extra time at the end of the day or week or month or year, you go on vacation and play. But it should be a daily thing. And I think I think amateurs have kind of tapped into that. They've gone. Right. You know, I want to do this, uh, but I don't want to get paid for it. They choose actively to just do it because they love to do it. And I think that that deserves a whole lot more respect than the word amateur kind of gets sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something that's so critically important about that that doesn't get enough attention, I think, that when people are doing something truly for the love of it, rather than for money for reward from, you know, external validation of some kind, you know, mm -hmm. something different happens. Absolutely. Yeah. Like when you're doing martial arts, when Alex Acuna is drumming, when I'm making art, when whatever, whoever is doing the thing, whatever it is, because you're playing, because you're following your curiosity, you're exploring, something really different happens when you're doing it from intrinsic motivation 
rather than extrinsic motivation. That's really what it comes down to, right? Absolutely. And I, and I think we, we find it harder and harder to tap into what, what, true intrinsic motivation because we're so set by value. Your time has value and you must have some, there must be some kind of flip-flop there. There must be a payment for your time. Um, whereas intrinsic motivation is not about that truly. And, and that's not even, we're not even going into societal pressures, peer pressure to go do things and that kind of stuff where you're not getting paid, but it's, you're giving someone else your time. You're almost paying someone else with your time. And so that intrinsic, like where does that true intrinsic motivation come from? I just, I just visited with my, my little nieces and I had a, an observation with my youngest, uh, Laurie, who's three in March. And there was a, it was a silly thing. It was a, whose, whose chair it was. Oh, she's sitting on my chair. Blah, blah. And, um, and she's so young. And, and, and my sister, her mother said, uh, Oh, do you, do you want to give, Joy her chair back and Laurie's face was it was a picture and she was like no and it was like it was such a true answer she's like no I don't <laughs> and she hasn't kind of learned about like oh I, I, yeah it's, I want to make my sister happy and I want to do other things for other people it was pure intrinsic it was pure nope my 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 feeling right now is I want that. <laughs> <laughs> we lose that right we lose that as adults because we have so many other things on our minds that, that we have to kind of pay off almost we have we're indebted to do things yeah well are you familiar with the the studies i think they were done at stanford the nursery school at stanford when they the which where my mom taught actually she taught at that nursery school for like 25 years they gave children who had were naturally drawn to the art table they gave them Mm. a reward for drawing at the art table Mm. And those same children were less likely to draw at the art table after getting a reward for drawing. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And I, it's, uh, I think it's Daniel Pink's book, Drive, where he oh, talks yeah. about... I'm familiar um, with Dan Pink, yeah, yeah. motivation. Mm. Yeah, he talks about in, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And if you are doing a task that is, you know, like a, um, a really like boring task then extrinsic motivation can be motivating. Yep. But if it's an, a naturally, uh, a, a task that is, I don't know how to, I'm not articulating this well, but... Has enjoyment. Yeah, yeah has enjoyment. It is, is, yeah. is a challenging naturally. task, an interesting yeah. task. Giving somebody an external reward for that task actually is counterproductive. Mm. Like giving a kid a reward for drawing at the art table is going to yeah. make them less likely to want to go back to the art table. It's crazy. My favorite takeaway from from Dan Pink um, and and some I think there's another gentleman I can't remember his name right now that uh, looking at motivation. I think specifically in the workplace and 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 money wasn't a, a major one. It was key up to a point. Like as long as your basic necessities are met. Yeah further monetary motivation doesn't really work that much yeah. but the three are I, I always have to say aim autonomy mastery and empowerment those are three things that if you want to motivate your employees that those are the three things you have to touch upon yeah um which talk, talk you know that autonomy i want to go play they are i don't want to have to do it to get the reward or anything like that um so i'm constantly trying to convince my department that that's what i need to be motivated but um uh, but they don't do the money thing much either anyway so <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Fortunately, I love what I do and I do fun things. <laughs> maybe that piece shouldn't go in. <laughs> or maybe it should. I don't know. <laughs> well, I know you've written some articles on play mm. and you, you, uh, you've done some, some speaking about play and, and you mentioned in passing the, the, um, United Nations, mm-hmm. um, it's called article 31, article 31. Yeah. Tell it, us about it's got that. A UN convention of rights of a child, article 31 general comment. Wow. That sounds really like fascinating reading. Well, it's funny when I did the talk for, uh, for Van, um, the UN has a, a definition of play, which is a, it's a long paragraph. And I start off my talk and I say, this is what the UN thinks players. And I, and I read it in a very monotone, dull <laughs> voice. And, and, you know, I said, everything in there is actually very true. Like it's very factual. Does anyone want to play after? Like, no, <laughs> everyone was like, Ugh. so, so the, yeah, it's very interesting that they've, they've really nailed the science of play down, but then taking it into application and being able to build upon it about that science is, is key. Um, so then I, so I was like, well, how would I define it? I did a few definitions of my own, but then I found, I've, I've got two of my favorites. I'm just putting them up right here. Um, two of my favorite definitions that I found from people who do this for a living, like people who really work with play. And the first was from Bernard Suits in a, in a, a book, I believe called the grasshopper games, life and utopia. And it, it plays a voluntary attempt to overcome an unnecessary challenge. And I thought that was just a pretty way of saying it. Hmm. And I thought, Oh, that's the one that's the, I'm going to put, there's going to be a PowerPoint and that's going And then I found the second one, which is just, it, it, it really, that that's the, uh, that's the Applebee's to the to the the Ruth Chris of of, <laughs> of definitions because this one from Jill Vialli from the, she's founder of Playworks. I don't know if you're familiar with Playworks. Mm-mm. They go into schools and make sure that play is happening, which is obviously as we know much needed. You know, recess is disappearing more and more nowadays. But her definition of play is that it is a brief respite from the tyranny of apparent purpose. And that's just, that's just the most beautiful set of words that I really have ever listened to. And you, and you, you roll it through your head and you're like, oh yeah, it's a beautiful use of the word tyranny and oh, apparent purpose. It's just fantastic. Oh my God, I love that. It's just brilliant. And it really kind of, it just, you know, from the long, dull UN definition, which hits all the major points, you know, in one, two, three, four, five, six, in seven words, it nails it. And I think that's that's key. I think, you know, you really hit home with kind of definitions like that. And for people that do this for a living, this is for me as a, I'm just interested. And I, I realized it's a part of my life and I'm like, okay, let me look into this more. But these guys are experts and these people that are doing some, some really good work in the, in the field about it and getting play to kids more. So I really wanted to kind of like pitch that. And I just, I think it's a beautiful definition. And these are all people that are specifically working on around play with children right with children yeah yeah the 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 play with adults is uh not many of us talking about it i don't think it's um it's kind of a new thing yeah and that that's something i'd really like to see change because (laughs) i just think it's so weird how we know like there's a lot of studies done on how play is play is how children learn, right? Play is how children learn. It's how they develop. It's 
like cognitively and physically and it's, you know, essential. it's like it's essential yeah. right Absolutely if, essential. if children are prohibited not allowed like unable to play all kinds of bad things happen right kind of yeah we know that right? we, we, can, we can know that we can state that as fact yeah we can state yeah. that as fact and yet somehow well, like what is it what do you reckon? It's like when adolescence hits. Right? When adolescence uh, hits, done. it just play like is play is over. <laughs> yeah, you got to grow up, right? We're always told we got to grow up and be more mature, and and I think that's nonsense. Yes, maturity is great, but you d not at the expense of losing uh, happiness. That's what play gives us: is pure happiness, joy. Absolutely, and so much more than that as well. I mean, it's not like human beings stop learning. Well, that's that was the main premise of my talk for Vaughn. I presented, hey, hey, play is really important. Here it is, blah, blah, blah. And that, most of that stuff was on kids. And then I switched tunes and I said, there's this thing called neuroplasticity. It's relatively new in the neuroscience world. We've discovered that our brains don't fix at a certain age or developmental stage, that they are malleable and they continue to grow and learn. Our brains continue to grow and learn until we die. And I'm like, Hello, <laughs> you've got play that's like essential to the learning and development of a child. Oh, but we don't stop learning. <laughs> well, we should continue playing then. And that, and that was my argument at the end. It's like we, we need to continue playing up into a ripe old age. Have you ever heard about these uh, programs that take you know, kindergarten kids and take them to, a, to an old people's home? I'm, yes. I'm not, like, why is that not happening globally? Every like, why is that not exactly. just like the most obvious thing ever? You know, that is something sure. that bothers me so much that we just like cordon off people like fifty-five and older or something. It's excuse me, there that is just insane. Yeah, and and we we have an epidemic of Alzheimer's and dementia happening right now, like tremendous proportions, and there's lots of reasons for it. And we're looking at lots of fancy new drugs to stop it. And I'm I'm like, hey, take some kids. Take some kids, put them in front of grand grandparents and and people who are you know don't have much else to do, and and look at their throw some throw some EEG on them. You'll see their brainwaves light up. Absolutely, you will see the brain start to engage, and guess what? They're going to have a, even if it doesn't stop. You know, and I I don't have the science to back up that this kind of stuff will will stop Alzheimer's or dementia and be a cure. But you know what? It's going to make their lives a hell of a lot more pleasurable at the end, and and that's just why would we not do that? That's just what humanity is about. Let's let's make everyone happier. Kids can learn from people who have seen life and done it, and talk about stories. And these people can see their youth and uh, um, and the energy from children that was just going to light up their lives again. It's it's so obvious. And the studies exactly. they did the studies with them. They're like, yeah, wow. We, I had no idea this would happen. I'm like, well, speak to us. We knew it was going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, why nursery schools and it's old folks' homes are not. Time at home is just one building. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it just, I, I'm kind of on an evangelistic kick about this. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm wholly there with you. I'm on a crusade. <laughs> yes. Well, I'll join forces with you on that crusade. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Um, yeah. Something that really has disturbed me a lot is this idea that play somehow should stop and also that play is somehow the opposite of work mm, absolutely yeah which it's not 
And my new consultancy that I recently started, what we do is we bring play into organizations and corporations, not as a break from work, but as a way to accomplish work. Absolutely. Engagement. Exactly. Play-based methodologies engage people, engage different parts of your brain than if you're just sitting around a table and talking. (laughs) Yeah. Are you familiar with uh, Google's 20% time? I am. Yeah. Most of their revenue programs, their largest revenue generating programs came from 20% time where there was no pressure. Do what you want. Right. All these things. Oh, wow. Do they sound familiar? Right out of the UN handbook on play. Um, and it's, it, and this is what baffles me now is it's so few places or people are connecting the dots with science. Like science has gone rampant. If you look at the past hundred years of science, we're just like, whoa. And right now it's brain science. We are doing some yeah. amazing things. But the problem is it's not, it's not dripping down into the real world. No one's applying it. It's like, wow, new study says this. Everyone's like, wow, that's really cool. And they go back and do the same old thing every day. There's no, there's no channel of, of saying, wow, we discovered this. Let's put it into a practical application and continue studying it. Let's put it in beta. That's what Google does all the time. They do beta programs and we like them, we don't like them, and that's how they develop stuff. Um, so it's, it, I think that's a big thing is that there's a big gap between what we know and what we do. And, and filling that gap is essential, I think. I wonder why that is. Do you have any ideas? Well, I mean, not to go into this route, but the current sociopolitical climate, you know, scientists are not considered, not considered cool anymore, <laughs> not even considered useful or needed. Um, and, there, and there might be, there might be reason why that. Scientists are there to do the science. They're not there to do the practical application. You know, they're scientists for a reason, and whatever field it is, they want to dig down and get questions answered. And when they answer a question, they just move on to the next next one. You know, they just move on. Whereas, you know, the industry is supposed to be able to kind of pick up on that and then deal with it. And and I think that's, there's a cog missing. There's a middleman or there's, there's a part of the communication, part of the machinery that's missing. And I, and I don't I don't have a solution for that. I don't have an answer. If someone wanted to pay me lots of money to think about it, I would come up with answers really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think you you put some people in a room. I think the best things that have ever happened. If you put a bunch of different people in a room, they'll come up with a solution for whatever the problem is. I suggested that in my in my talk is that you got a problem with your company, whatever it is. Oh, X X thing is not working. Well, usually what happens is you go, well, let's get, well, we need the expert on X. Okay, Billy, you're the expert on X. What's the answer? And he'll give some ideas. But he's got a narrow, defined view of the world. You could go ask the cleaner outside, going, how would you fix this? And he might say something like, oh, that's obvious to me. And they want to go, oh, my God, why didn't we think of that? Because they have a different view of the world. Everyone's got a very different view. And we have this, obviously, this social economic kind of caste system this class system where we're not going to ask the people who are not experts or don't have this certification or education or qualification same as the the book we were talking about earlier outliers there are absolute geniuses out there that have zero education yeah but they but they are geniuses and 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 i think we we stigmatize learning and education we stigma and and you know people who are professors who are good at doing professory things are considered the highest Yet, 
and 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 forgive me, but artists are often at a lower echelon, right? Mm-hmm. Can, you know, why why go to uh, university to study art? You're not going to make any money doing that. That's the general consensus: is you've got to do something that's going to be a safe career. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. You know, the past ten years has shown us that there are no yeah. careers anymore. There, there's only revenue streams. You've got to have multiple. <laughs> right. And and I I found that people who who are more artistic are far better at problem solving. They're yeah. far better, especially um, uh, people who, who have to, you know, uh, sculptures or people who make installations. They have to just come up. They you know, like I want. They have a vision in their head. If they could just go bloop, it'd be easy. But they have to figure that out. That's yeah. problem solving, and they do it constantly. They're constantly figuring out usually on a really, really low budget, right? They've got to figure out how to get their vision out for a few hundred dollars or whatever it is. Whereas if they had all the money in the world, it would be super easy. It uh, reminds me of one of my favorite TED Talks. Um, oh, God, and I've forgotten his name. I'm terrible. It's the Golden Circle. It's uh, Simon Sinek. That's his name. Oh, yeah. And he, in it, he tells a story about um, the Wright brothers. They're trying to fly. And um, they had no money. They had absolutely no money. They had no backing. They had nothing. It was just them. So they still, it's what they wanted to do. And there was another guy at the same time trying to fly with full backing, funding all the money in the world and everything. And when the Wright brothers finally did it, he gave up. And he, I can't remember. He had a specific point for that. But it was like, well, why, don't you, why didn't you go, oh, wow, you've discovered how to do it that way? Look, I've got one of these wings that's going to help it even better. But it wasn't. He wanted to be the first. That's all he cared about. He didn't really care about flying. Just wanted to be the first. He wanted the award, right? Wasn't doing it for the love of it. So it's it's an interesting perspective. I think we really need to reach out to a lot of people. And guess what, kids? Yeah. You, you ask you ask a kid how to solve like a, a global epidemic problem. They'll come up with some really cool things, and most people are like, "Well, that wouldn't work." And then you'd be like, "Well, wait." <laughs> It could, you know, so we, I think we need to really open our eyes to everyone's talents and, and, uh, and, uh, utilize their abilities. And I think that's key. And I think, and all of that is play. You put people in a room and you play together and you come up with a solution. That's what we did as kids, right? That's how we learn how to problem solve yeah. conflict resolution. There's the, the yellow truck and I want to play with it, but Billy wants to play with it too. And Billy grabs it, but I grab it. And usually a parent comes in if there's tears, but what if there's no parent there? We just resolve it on our own. We figure it out. And that's, that's, that's what we need to keep doing. But, uh, and I don't think we do that enough in, in play. We have all these uh, protocols for conflict resolution, right? If you work in a corporate workplace, there are, there's protocols for human resources and conflict resolution. And more often than not, they're not very effective. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I found. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, this has just been such a fascinating conversation. Um, I would love to, at this point, switch over to our something cool. Did you bring something cool to share? I, I did. It's not, it's not with me. I could show you it on my phone. Um, That's okay. Nobody, it, nobody's going to be able to see it anyway because it's an no, yeah. audio podcast. But I, I keep forgetting that. I'm being all <laughs> animated while I talk and I'm like, wait, no one can see me. <laughs> um, I am Denard, but this was the first thing that popped into my head. And I was like, yeah, but it's not related. And you said that was cool. But I was like, should I do it? But I think it actually is related. Um, going back to the UN thing. And uh-huh. oh, oh, I forgot to say when you said there's a really cool video. So, so listeners, go, go search for This Is Me 
Article 31 UN Rights of a Child. And it's it's one of the most uplifting videos on play that you've ever seen. It's got a great little song to it. And you see kids playing all around the world. And if you ever need to kind of like start your day and be creative and playful, start it with that three minute video and it's going to it's going to change your world. It's beautiful. But kind of talking about um, that that comment, it's a very kind of long document. And one of the things it talks about is that there has to be kind of touched on this at the beginning. There has to be opportunities. There have to be safe places, you know, free from pollution, free from danger or toxicity. Um, And. Sometimes our governments are not the best at choosing those. There, there are ulterior motives sometimes in who gets to build on certain land and what that land's used for. And typically, money is a, a big proponent of that. What profits can we make from that? And that takes away from the spaces where uh, children can play. And we know it's essential for children, but also adults to play as well. And of course, that's gonna, that happens more in low economic areas where they don't get a say in, in what is built in their neighborhoods. Um, so for me, when I look at things like that, I think they're incredibly unfair. Uh, I say, how can I make change? And I, I'm not a citizen in the US, so I can't vote. My, my, I don't have a, a vote uh, in that kind of system. But I really think in, in, in today's world, uh, our vote comes from our wallets. We mm-hmm. vote. Yeah, if a company does something bad and we continue to buy its product, what are we saying? We're saying that that bad thing is okay. We're saying that we don't care that that company stole from these people or fraudulently told us something and that's how they made their profits. We, if we continue to buy that product, we don't care. And I, I don't believe in that. So I've, I've made a concerted effort um, to find out about the companies that I buy from. And I'm not perfect. Like, I'm, I'm talking to you with an Apple computer with Apple iPods, and I've got Apple phone over here. And they, Apple, they've done some great things, but they have some dodgy work practices. And if you look up, if no one knows about it, you can look it up. Um, but I make sacrifices to, so I can get out into the world. But what I use specifically is an app called Bycott, B-U-Y-C-O-T-T. And you get it on the, I, I don't know whether it's on Android yet, but you can get it on the, the iPhone. And, uh, and it's really simple. You sign up and you search for things that are important to you. So if, if mining certain materials and you don't want to use things that use those materials, certain metals that are precious or that are not mined in a sustainable way, then you look for that and you join that campaign. And so you join a bunch of campaigns. I have a bunch of food ones on there. Uh, um, and, uh, and a bunch of kind of, uh, well, ESG, if you, if you're familiar with that environmental sustainability and governance. So you look at those kinds of things and you go, okay, these things are important to me. These are my campaigns. And then you take your phone along with you whenever you shop and you scan the barcode and it'll either pop up red. Hey, this is a get, this company is against your campaigns or it'll pop up green. Be like, wow, this is a great company. And then you can also look at the entire family tree of that company. And so there's, you know, there's this meme that goes around the, the social media that's, that, that all our food is really from about 10 different companies. There's not really much diversity in our food. And so for me, if I look for the family tree and it belongs to one of those 10 companies, I, I try to find something else, a smaller brand, a, a brand that looks like it is still run by families or it is local to me or something like that. And that's just my choice. That's what's great about it is you don't have to agree with my choices to use Bicot. You join whatever campaigns you want. If you want to join a campaign that's like, I want to buy from the richest company in the world, then join that campaign and then you'll find those products, whatever you want. But I think that information gives us the, the, the decision-making capabilities to make the changes that we want. So if we don't think our vote 
that one single vote on voting in someone who's going to make a bunch of decisions that we're not sure about that's in government. Well, we can make that vote ourselves every single time that we purchase something. And, and Bicart is a great app. And there might be some other apps out there that do a similar thing, but I, I just wanted to propose the idea out there. Wow, I had not heard of that app. That's fantastic. I'm going to check it out. Thank you. Check, check it out. But the first time you go shopping with it, give yourself three or four hours. Because <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I went and I scanned things and I'm like, nope, 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 nope. All, my fa- all the things I used to buy, I didn't know about these kind of things happening in the background. And so, yeah, the first, first couple of times it takes you a while, but then you find brands. You're like, yeah, I know this brand and I know this company now and I, and I want to support them with my money. That's great. Wow. That's a fantastic something cool. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. My something cool is a lot lighter than that. <laughs> <laughs> my something cool this week is a film that my husband and I watched, oh, maybe a month ago now. That's from about a year ago, I think it came out. It's called What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, I don't know. It. It's from New Zealand. And it's from the guys, or at least one of the guys from the uh, Flight of the Concords. Oh wow! If you're familiar with them at all, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a satirical mockumentary uh, oh, of of mock documentary of four. I think it is four vampires who are roommates in a house in New Zealand, pre- <laughs> present time, and they're all different ages the oldest one is three thousand years old <laughs> and i think the youngest one what is that in human years um <laughs> it's like dog three, years right <laughs> three thousand i mean they, he was turned into a vampire three thousand years old three thousand years ago and then there's one who's 800 years old and one right. who's uh, 150 years old or something like that and you know they sleep one sleeps in a crypt and one <laughs> hangs upside down in a closet or something and of course they you know they can only go out at night because they would be killed by the sunlight and all that and the premise is that there's a film crew that has they've given special dispensation that they will not kill them oh yeah <laughs> of <thank> course <laughs> in order to film them and it is hysterically funny and it combines um <laughs> it somehow manages to combine uh, elements of comedy and horror. Oh, really? And you know that there's there's a fair amount of blood because, <laughs> of course, they have to kill people to you know eat. <laughs> and um and sweet like sweetness. It's it, it is it is just adorable, and I absolutely loved it. We both loved it. So, so is, is it like kind of like The Office that there's, a, you know, the film crew is there and yes. it's, it's actually a, docu- a documentary. Oh, yes. wow, that's fantastic. Yes, it is. Yeah, they, you know, the film crew is there. You never actually see any of the film, the film, the cinematographers, but you hmm. know, they're there and they're spe- the, the vampires speak to the camera. <laughs> that's brilliant. It is so what's funny. It, what's it called again, the title? It's called What We Do in the Shadows. And was it on a streaming service? Is it? What, uh, what did we, you see it in the we watched it on Amazon Prime. Oh, perfect! I have that. I'm going to watch it probably yeah. tonight. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it it we just loved it. So that's that's my something cool. That's a that's very cool. I I have trouble my 
I, I think I spend more time searching for a movie on yes, Prime or Netflix yes. than actually watching them. <laughs> I so know. I love it when I get recommended. I'm like, please give me a recommendation. Yeah, um, we, we totally loved it. So <laughs> you'll, you'll have to let me know what you think. <laughs> yes. This has been really fantastic, Paul. Thank you so much for sharing everything that you do and play and martial arts and taking the time to talk to me. This has been so fun. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. In fact, I felt like I was playing. I was worried and I, I had all things up on my screens ready to quote, but it's beautiful just to be able to have a conversation and just flow. We didn't really have an agenda and I love where it went. It was great to be able to do that. Awesome. I loved it too. Improv, play, that's what I'm all about and I'm glad you had a good time too. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you. That's it. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Paul McCarthy, the British ninja. Let me know if you resonated. And thank you so much for joining me today. If you are getting value out of this podcast, share it with a friend. And I would be so appreciative and grateful if you would take a moment, hop on over to iTunes or the Apple podcast player and leave a rating and review. If you need some instructions for how to do that, you can find step-by-step instructions over at creativesandboxway.com slash iTunes dash review. That's creativesandboxway.com slash iTunes hyphen review. And if you email me, let me know that you left a review and let me know how the podcast has made a difference in your own life. That's how you can apply to be considered for the listener spotlight. Every so often, I like to shine the spotlight on my listeners. And if I pick you, we'll have a really fun, really relaxed conversation, just like Paul and I had, and you'll get to be featured on the podcast. How cool is that? If you need a little inspiration, here is what Anna B. Dancer wrote. She wrote, fun and useful, definitely worth a listen. This podcast is interesting and insightful, definitely worth subscribing. Melissa asks great questions of guests, and the conversations are fun to listen to. If you want to jumpstart your creative process, this podcast will help you bring innovative innovative thinking to the forefront of your life. Thank you, Anna B. Dancer. That is it. Until next time, thanks again for joining me and go get creating. Subscribe at creative sandboxway.com slash podcast.